Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Wherever you are, this is the Interpreter's Workshop Podcast. I'm Tim Curry, your host. Here we talk everything sign language interpreting. The ins, the outs, the ups, the downs, the sideways of interpreting. If you're a student, a new interpreter, experienced interpreter, this is the place for you. If you want to know more, go to interpretersworkshop.com. Let's start talking interpreting. And now the quote of the day by German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Wishing is not enough. We must do. Today starts the interview with a wonderful interpreter who has applied much of her knowledge to our profession. And I think we can only wish that we can do as much as she has done. Now let's start talking with Sharon Newman Solo. Thinking about how to introduce you to this wide audience, which is multicultural, multilingual. I know you've traveled many places, but let me try to summarize your life. Sharon Newman Solo is an American interpreter. She began interpreting about the same time as the profession started developing in the U.S. Her experiences are vast, and that is why I'm interviewing her today. She is an educator, a consultant, an author, a performer, a television star, an inspiring presenter, a mentor, and an inspiration for many interpreters in the U.S. and abroad. And I hope to give you some of that insight from her today in this very brief session with her. So, Sharon, welcome. We're very happy to have you. Thank you. That is a very kind introduction. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I'm very impressed that you have this podcast. What a gift to the community. Of interpreters, I mean. Well, thank you. It is hopefully a place that they can learn from you and from all of us every week. That's the goal. We've talked many times, but I think there's something that you could share with us, your overall philosophy or your overall perspective of the field of interpreting. The work of interpreting, in my view, is so different than so many other kinds of work. and. What it is, is trying to create a world in which people who don't use the same language feel as though they're talking directly to one another, feel as though they're hearing directly from someone the information that person is giving. That's sort of the broad thing. That's very good. That touches my experience. Yeah. I think the critical feature that creates that is, is a sort of a contradiction of terms. It is, I have to be totally present as an interpreter. I must be totally there. Um, I have to be focused. I have to be involved in everything that's going on and really doing my work. And at the same time, I have to let my ego, my pride, 
my sense of myself as important go. I need to be a channel. I need to be a way that people can talk to each other and to do my best. So that's my ego helping me be better. And then I have to throw my ego away so that I don't care how other people look at me or think of me. And I don't want the attention. I want them to look at each other. So it's a, it's a challenge, but it's a beautiful challenge. As I watch interpreters, this is a challenge because sometimes interpreters like for other people to pay attention to them. They like to be important. They like to be the center of attention. And this is um, a contradiction because you are the center of intention, attention, and you shouldn't try to be. <laughs> I like the phrase center of intention. Yeah, I know. That was a good slip. Well, yeah, a it's good perfect. error. Um, <laughs> those who prefer the center of attention means they're the center of intention. Interesting. Yes, I, yes, exactly. I love that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you think that your view comes from? Oh, good question. Um, lots and lots of experience. <laughs> <laughs> but also from watching and learning from other interpreters of all sorts, um, even interpreters who are far less experienced, but definitely from people that were much more experienced than me. I like to always credit one person who taught me so much. Well, there's a couple, but Lou Fant, who was a leader in the American interpreting community, an actor and a teacher and a mentor. And he was very confident and sure of himself in his work and in the world, but he was also very humble and very interested in other people and what was going on and open, open, open to any learning. I always say, I want to grow up and be like that. One of my first supervisors when I first started working was a woman named Virginia Hughes. And she is a real, another real pioneer in the field of interpreting in the United States. And she, just like Lou, she was what she taught. She behaved as she believed. She never put herself first. She always put the communication first, the clients first. And that was an early, early, early part of my learning from both of them and other wonderful teachers as well. And every time I watch, even today, as I watch other interpreters, when I work as a team with another interpreter, when that interpreter is genuinely focused on the work and not themselves, the work is usually so much better. And when the interpreter that I work with, unfortunately, is focused on themselves, the work suffers. It's a daily awareness. Tim, you know, daily, mm -hmm. as well as something I learned very young, thank goodness, from these wonderful teachers. So you learned from them. What was it like? What did it look like? Take us back to that time when you first started interpreting. Now, I know personally that you are a CODA, 
And so you probably have been technically interpreting your whole life. But what was the experience like when you first started interpreting and when you felt that moment, this is my profession? Mm. Well, I I did interpret all my life um, because of my deaf parents and the deaf community that I was very heavily involved with, of course, because that was mm-hmm. their community. Yes. But the first time I ever interpreted professionally was a very odd circumstance. Um, it was in a doctoral program at a university, Ooh. and I was 15 years old. Well, you say and 15, one five. One five. Uh-huh. One five. Okay. I was 15. I was in high school, <laughs> and I got. I worked first in the summer before the the next year, but then during my school year, I had a special blue pass that allowed me to leave school at my fifth period, so that I could go to the university and interpret the coursework. So you left during the school day. Yes. Towards the end, you were allowed to leave to go interpret at the yes. university. Uh-huh. I, okay. I left before the rest wow. of the students left. Um, <laughs> it was a real, a really excellent, excellent benefit. Um, <laughs> but I would go over to the university and interpret. At, but And in the summer, I interpreted. But I was interpreting for things way beyond my knowledge and my sophistication. So that first transition into interpreting was very, very rocky. I didn't understand very much of what I was talking about. And I didn't have any experience in terms of watching other people interpret. There had never been Anyone, I had never seen anyone do this professionally. Wow. Just little smidgens here and there. But Mm -hmm. for example, we did not have an active deaf community in terms of a religious place like a church or a temple. Mm -hmm. We didn't have an interpreter there that I was aware of. Uh, We just didn't have anybody who interpreted anything except you would go to uh, the school for the deaf, the residential school for the deaf, and maybe there would be a person, one of the staff members, who would sign while somebody else was giving a spoken introduction because the parents couldn't all sign, for example. So, very rare wow. that I saw anybody mm-hmm. doing anything that I would call interpreting. But the gift of my life was that the students, the deaf doctoral students that I interpreted for were incredible people. And they taught me personally by reacting to me. The whole time I would interpret, they would nod or they would nod negatively mm-hmm. or they would make a look of great perplexity on their face like they'd be confused uh-huh. or they would like signing a little thing to correct me, or they would um, just, they gave me a lot of cues, a lot of information in their body language and their gestures and their signing and, and their eyes and everything. <laughs> I feel like they were directing my interpreting on a micro level, like really mm-hmm. closely because I didn't know anything. And so they were like going, yeah, do that. Don't do that. Yeah, do that. Don't do that. Oh, do more of that. Do more of that. Oh, more of that. Oh, don't do that ever. (laughs) 
So I was getting that message from the deaf doctoral students who were ugh, a million times more prepared than I was for this environment. <laughs> and that molded me in a couple of really wonderful ways. First, it helped me understand what we do as interpreters mm -hmm. because they knew what they wanted. Thank you, God. Yes. But secondly, it taught me that really important thing that I don't know that everybody understands, which is the person who's the client, you know, the deaf person or the hearing person, but in this case, mostly for us deaf people, mm -hmm. the deaf person knows better than I do what they need yes. in many, many cases. Yes. There are times when that's not true, like with small children mm -hmm. or certain things, but sure. they often know what they need and want. And if I pay attention, they don't always know how to tell me what they want, but if I pay attention, I see in their response what they want and me. And I can try or succeed <laughs> in moving my interpretation toward what they prefer and need. But I think that was ingrained in me very early and it's been a very gift, a very large gift in terms of helping me to be what I hope is the best I can be. And how I knew that it was time that this would be my profession was um when, how was it that I knew it would be my profession? I didn't for a really long time. I sort of fell into it. Mm -hmm. And one day, and I don't know what day that was, but one day I realized that not only was this something I could do professionally, for real, like as a career, but also that it was something that identified me like that's who I am I'm an interpreter and I wanted desperately to be better at it and I wanted to teach it because I want and I didn't want to teach it because I wanted to be honest I didn't want to teach it so that other people would understand I wanted to teach it because I wanted to understand and there weren't any teachers who taught interpreting. Mm -hmm. So every time I would go to find something, to learn something, it would turn around to me teaching it so that I could understand it better. Mm -hmm. And so I have always said, I'm so grateful because I pretended to teach, but what I was really doing was learning. Yeah, that's true. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. If you have any ideas for the podcast, contact me at interpretersworkshop.com. For now, let's go back. So you say there were no teachers or no courses or no programs. When, If I may ask, yeah, what time period are we talking about? Oh, I started interpreting in 1965. So the National Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf was founded in 1964. I never met anyone who had any experience interpreting until 1968, maybe nine, 1968 or nine, when I worked, I left my home in Arizona, and which is in the southwest of the United States. And I went to the close to the East Coast to Rochester, New York, mm -hmm. uh, where the National Technical Institute for the Deaf was just starting, mm -hmm. just found. 
Wow. And they had not written interpreters into their grant. And so they, one of those doctoral students that I had interpreted for asked me if I would come out because they had no interpreters. Ah. And so I did. What an adventure. So I was 18 years old, <laughs> and I moved to Rochester uh, to interpret at NTID, the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. And at the National Technical Institute for the Deaf was the first time I ever met other people. They started hiring other interpreters. Uh-huh. So we were all new. We were all new to the gig of interpreting. Yeah. But we started to at least have conversations. The only other colleague I'd had before was my sister, who was a gift to me, yeah. but she was my sister. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to be fair, the, the hearing student who went to school, who was in the doctoral program, Norm Tully, he went to the doc, he was going through that same program. And he mentored me, truly. He did help me a lot to help me know what to do. He he was the first person who ever said, well, you just listen to what they say, and then you sign it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. That's the basic. (laughs) Very helpful. And and much more, much more. He was very helpful. But uh, at NTID, I was just fortunate because it was such a big program. It was a very important program. Lou Fan was a part of Mm -hmm. the National Theater of the Deaf at that time. And they came to NTID and I met Lou there. And he, for some generous reason, reached out to me that, you know, in a conversation and said, I hope you continue doing this. And he gave me a lot of encouragement Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what I was doing, but he made me think maybe I did know a little about what I was doing. And that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was experiences um, like that, talking to other people who were trying to figure this out, this profession, uh, that helped me think, oh, I want to be part of this profession. Mm-hmm. There are many places around the world where they're still at that point, still trying to develop how do they create a course or a degree program, train interpreters, all of those questions are still in many countries. What advice would you say to those who are trying to set up something for training for interpreters? Oh, there's so much that I wish would happen in the training of interpreters, but here are some one one or two thoughts. Perhaps the most important thing that comes to my mind is actual practice. And I I mean by that, as realistic uh, experiences and exercises as possible, so that the students don't just talk about the work, and the teachers don't just talk about the work, but they do the work and experience themselves in the work, and then discuss that in very real terms, having done it. And I want to say also, As a teacher who used to teach and kind of interpret, and now who really interprets and kind of teaches, like I've switched (laughs) from majority work teaching Uh to majority work interpreting, that has really enriched my teaching. I think real world interpreting is important for the teachers, or not all of them. I think some teachers can teach specialized areas. 
But if you can, keep interpreting. If you're going to teach, keep interpreting in the real world. Because what happened to me was I interpreted just what I wanted to interpret because I was working full time as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do a lot of, of the regular work that's out there. That what you know, when they uh, there's a phrase in English, boots on the ground, meaning you're really in it, you're not just uh, looking from uh, a high view, you're right there in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that work being boots on the ground, being in the work, interpreting for some little doctor's appointment, and interpreting for uh, a child who's in physical therapy, and interpreting for um, a court case interpreting for whatever all the hard things all the easy things everything mm -hmm. has enriched my teaching so i encourage teachers to keep working and i encourage students to keep practicing to not try to think it through all the time to think work think work because when we apply our learning to actual work it comes alive in us. That's nice. Kind of like dancers learning the steps and seeing the patterns that have been put on the floor. They know all of that, but actually doing it and feeling the muscles and muscles that you haven't used before. For interpreters, we have so many mental muscles that we don't use in that way regularly. So yeah, that makes sense. And you know, when you give that analogy, one thing that relates to that is that I remember one of my students when I taught at the university, she was an A student, excellent grades, but there was something wrong with the system because she was not a good interpreter. Ah. So the other piece of advice that I would give is to have some sort of assessment, testing, exams that really assess, really test the effectiveness of the work as well as how well they can think about and describe the theories and all the other. And I think the combination is very important to understand the work, to be able to talk about the work. That's very important. But we have to also assess test, uh, whether or not the student is getting what we want them to understand related to actual practice. Mm -hmm. So I also think it's really important to have toward the end of the training a very significant mentoring and or practicum internship, whatever you might call it, but where the interpreter is in the field doing some work in safe environments where there's another interpreter who's experienced to make sure that nobody you know, nobody dies, nobody goes to jail, <laughs> nobody gets sick, nobody forgets to take their medicine, nobody, you know, does the wrong exercise, whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's one interpreter who's there to monitor and mentor and supervise, mm -hmm. but the student who is now a burgeoning, a beginning professional has real life experience. And they have that view from the mentor which direction to go with their interpreting skills. A little bit like my first client who said, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't do that. Yep, do that. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and because you're also getting the client's feedback 
and learning what to look for, what is feedback and what is not feedback. Yes. I like that, the way you said that, learning what is and is not feedback, because here's the other thing. Every interpreter learns, I hope, before too long, that not everything is about them. (laughs) So the deaf client might look confused, but it might not be the interpretation. I think it's very important to assume it could be Uh (laughs) and to check that to see, you know, as it's something I did. Mm -hmm. but. To not assume that everything is uh, related to the interpretation. Yes. And this is the dichotomy. Not assume everything's related to the interpretation and check to be sure that everything isn't just related to the interpretation. Because <laughs> it might be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We live in a complicated world. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we have to interpret it. Yes. <laughs> It's always nice to talk to Sharon Newman solo. I would first like to point out that Sharon said a lot of things in this episode or in this interview that I say in some of my episodes already. That was not planned in any way, but it was a pleasant surprise. Now let me try to summarize a few key points from this episode. The first one is about our ego. As interpreters, Sharon points out that we should use our ego in two ways. One, it should push us to do the best work that we can. And number two, we should push the ego away to allow others to shine in that moment. And she talks about her experience giving her a broader perspective about our work. I think this is important. She mentions watching and learning from other interpreters, new as well as experienced interpreters. The third point I would make is that we as interpreters need to learn how to read the feedback from our clients. But when we push away our ego, as she said, it will allow us to open up to other reasons for the feedback, not necessarily our interpretation or us personally. And then when talking about creating a training program for interpreters, One of the important things she mentions is that we should not, as students or even teachers, just talk about interpreting. We should practice interpreting in a real-as-possible situation and then talk about what has happened, connecting it to the theory or the process models, that sort of thing, which connects to her point of academic knowledge does not necessarily mean a good interpreter. There must be some type of testing or assessment of their interpreting skills. And this is very crucial for the communities that we serve to have trust in us, to know that those who work as interpreters have proven that they have the skills to do so. So there's more to come with Sharon Newman Solo next week. For now, check out her website. The link will be in the description for this episode. And as always, I will see you next week. Take care now.